Okay, guys, it's 2023. What does that mean? Well, as much as I may want to resist going with the ye old New Year's resolutions, I do find that in January, I have a renewed sense of energy and desire to make some changes and get back on or just get on for the first time, the horse of health and well-being. Now, in the midst of our seventh season of Heal, I wanted to check in with you, my audience. What do you need now in your healing journey? What are your goals? What are you struggling with, dealing with, or even resigned to that you don't think will ever change? What has been there lingering in the background that you just don't want to drag into yet another year? I want to hear from you. I want to connect and be sure that we are delivering on the topics of information and inspiring stories to support you in your healing journey. When Kendra and I first crafted the idea for Heal, it definitely came out of my personal desire to put as much goodness and possibility of health and healing out into the world. And not actually here just to entertain you. My true heart's desire is that this show makes a difference in your life and supports you to take action to live health and heal. Also, I want to be sure that you know, I have a comprehensive deep dive medical health consulting practice where I meet with my clients virtually from all over the world, and I have room for you. Many people ask me if I'm taking new clients, and while I love that y'all think I'm book solid 100% of the time, actually, I want you to know I am available. I offer a free 30-minute exploration conversation to anyone interested in working with me to learn more about each other and how my approach may make a difference for you. Commonly, I work with people dealing with hormone issues, gut and digestive issues, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders, mold toxicity, chronic allergies, migraine headaches, insomnia, and people who have dealt with chronic anxiety and depression looking to support their body's biochemistry in addition to healing their emotional and mental challenges. While that may seem like quite a list, most of those diseases are connected and disorders are connected. So we will bridge the gap to bring it all together to elevate your health and your well-being and get your life back. I have a deeply intuitive and scientific-based approach. Yes, both. I bridge the worlds of coaching, spiritual energy healing, and doctoring to bring you the best tools you need to get your life and your health back as efficiently and effectively as possible. The early months of the new year come with an increasing light each day, bringing new vision, new motivation, and new energy. As the seeds you planted last summer and fall, deep beneath the soil are slowly waking up and gathering their power to sprout new futures this spring. This is the perfect time to take new action and create health and a pathway to healing. I'm here for you. If you have felt called to find out more about the possibility of working together, please reach out on my Connect page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com, and let's talk. Also, please contribute to the show with guest ideas or topic ideas or how-to guides or whatever it is that is going to make a difference for you this year in 2023. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to know about? What are you dealing with? You can shoot us an email on that same page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com slash connect. I love you guys. Heal wouldn't exist without you. Thanks so much. Welcome to Heal. Today on Heal, we get to talk with my personal physician and mentor of 17 years, Dr. Dick Tom. 
Dr. Tom was one of my very first professors in naturopathic medical school, and I was hooked from the start. Following him from class to class to seminar to one-on-one mentorship to business courses, Dr. Tom has been a pioneer in the practice of alternative naturopathic medicine and dentistry, starting with the core principle that we treat people and not just their diseases. Together in this episode, we explore the core foundations of what it takes to heal, to rebuild health, and discuss some of the fundamental aspects of what has caused our epidemic of poor health and disease in the modern world. From core naturopathic philosophy to right here and now actions you can take to increase your vitality and resilience to heal and prevent illness, Dr. Tom and I are going to talk about it all. Dr. Tom has 52 years of medical experience as a clinician and teacher to doctors, students, and the lay public in proven medical principles and business skills. Starting with a degree in the practice of dentistry, Dr. Tom moved on to complete not one, but two doctorates of naturopathic medicine degrees. Dr. Tom also was the past dean of naturopathic medicine at NCNM, my alma mater school, and was a full-time professor for over 25 years. In 2009, he received a very prestigious honor and was awarded the VEAS Award from the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians for his commitment to healing power of nature as demonstrated through his work, life, and community service. He's lectured extensively for over 40 years throughout the world and has written and collaborated on many articles dealing with energy medicines and nutrition and is the author of five books, two of which we're going to talk about in this episode, which I'm very excited about. So join us in the conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Well, this is a day to go down in history for me in my life. I get to be here with my actual, literal, legit, 100% medical mentor, Dr. Dixon Tom. Dr. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Heal today. It's a real pleasure, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be part of this and to be part of a community of people who are interested in sort of expanding their ideas about medicine, for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do today. I mean, like, in preparation of this interview, I was totally trying to like, because there's a hundred questions I want to ask you, <laughs> like my own, like, you know, I mean, we met in 2005, my first year in naturopathic medical school, you were teaching one of the introductory straight out of the gate classes on physiology and the beginnings. And then you and another doctor tag teamed in teaching us the entire world of diagnosing disease. And I still reference those notes all the time throughout my practice of the pearls and the details and the things that I got from those classes. And then I pretty much hunted you down. Every chance I get, I would get into every class you offered. <laughs> Whether or not they really wanted me to or not, I, I would manage to finagle my way into all the clinic shifts and all the observation shifts. So like, it's just so awesome to get to be here. And you've also been my personal naturopathic physician for... I mean, we started in 2007, I think, while I was still in school. So it's it's been quite some time. Right. Yeah. So a little bit more about your background. You are 45 years of medical experience now? 52. 52. We need to update your bio on the website. Wow. So tell us a bit about where your journey started with practicing medicine. I, for, you know, for whatever reason, when I was a teenager, I was sort of always enthralled with being a dentist. So 
you know, I literally just went through all the hoops required to do that. We got into dental school when I was only 19 years old, graduated when I was 23 years old. I was the youngest person in my class. And, and during, when I was in dental school, I met my now wife who I've been married to for 49 years. And so in a few months, it'll be 50 years. So, you know, the, and she had a variety of health problems, you know, as a young woman. And so over the course of my early years in dentistry, I, you know, we, we trotted off to various physicians trying to help my wife with problems. And eventually we found a person who had a sort of a totally different approach to, to medicine and a totally different approach to health. And was introduced to the idea that amalgams, silver fillings that I was putting in people's teeth was probably not the best thing to be doing in their long-term health problems. And so, you know, I was, I would say one of the very first people who back in the 1970s, was promoting the idea that silver amalgams was should never be put in somebody's mouth. And so it became, certainly in my area of the world, which was in Canada at the time, probably was one of the first people to promote the idea that we needed to use different types of restorative materials. Unfortunately, that got me into a little bit of legal issues because it was sort of against the norm of what everybody was doing. And so they started to make it rather uncomfortable to practice medicine, to practice dentistry, and of course, by then I was into looking at other ways to support my patients. And so anyway, long story short, it eventually led me to naturopathic medicine. I took a, a, a degree in Canada and felt it was okay, but then met a, a gentleman who had graduated from the school in Portland, Oregon. He said, you know, if you want to really round out your education, just go to Portland and finish it, which is what I did. And that was 40 some years ago, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and I've sort of never looked back. So I've been in, so I practiced my first, you know, number of years in dentistry, but certainly I'll, I'll, even then alternative dentistry, which is now much more common, more and more dentists are very familiar with silver amalgams. They're not particularly the best thing to put in your teeth. But as I said, I was doing that 45, 46 years ago, well before it was sort of the norm to do it. And I sort of felt I've been somewhat of a pioneer in, in, in approaching health and approaching medicine from the way of not looking at, you know, a person's, the name of their problem, the name of their disease per se, but trying to appreciate and understand, well, how did you get here? What happened? Like, how is it that you have condition X and whether they had a migraine headache or dysmenorrhea or toenail fungus or stage four cancer, it's like, you know, I said, and we don't treat that because it's really not your problem. It's a sign you have a problem. And our real goal in helping you is to help you understand, you know, what are the what were the things that happened that that allowed you to get to this particular point and in your health journey, and how I can probably help you is to help you understand the types of things that you can do for yourself more than what I can do for you, that you can do on a day to day basis that will have a pretty dramatic impact in the long term aspect of you know health. So I, I long ago realized that. You know, seeing a physician isn't just about, well, make me feel better today. I'm more interested in making a person feel better until they are no longer here in this world with the highest quality of life, no matter the starting point. So, you know, it's taken many twists and turns. I always feel that, somewhat feel that a pioneer in some of the things that, that how I practice. I don't practice the way a lot of physicians do, since I don't really, I'm not really... You know, when somebody says, do you treat migraine headaches? They said, actually, no, I don't, because I don't know how to treat them. I know how to treat people who have migraine headaches, but I don't know how to treat the headache. 
and and so it gets people's attention that oh there's something different about our approach and so that, that's sort of a you know a 50-year summary of where we're at with today yeah well it's been i mean i my felt philosophy grounding in the way that I practice has has pretty much almost entirely come from you. I mean, I certainly have learned from other practitioners, but I there was a some sort of resonance between you and I from the very beginning that I experienced and and I have very much that same experience when I've done speaking engagements even and I've had other healthcare practitioners, co- coaches, nurses, doctors, pharmacists that have listened to things that I've shared. They're like I've been in medicine for 10 years, 20 years, 15 years, and I've never heard anyone put it together the way that you just did. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I learned it from this guy in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Tom. <laughs> and and I know you've pulled from a lot of core philosophy, like deep rooted philosophy of naturopathic medicine. And I, I, I'm going to put a teaser in here for a potential future podcast, because it's not the conversation I want to focus on today. But one of the greatest lessons I remember was when you were talking about the history of our medicine and the history of medicine as a whole and where we've come from. And I feel like you had an amazing way to integrate what we would consider the modern cutting edge of science and rigor of medicine alongside of staying grounded in the core philosophical principles of the laws of nature and how the body actually heals. And when we align ourselves to that, we actually get greater results in producing health outcomes versus if we're focused only on symptom resolution or trying to have this person feel get better now in this very moment. Without any doubt, if, if you don't go back to, you know, we can think about, you know, Hippocrates in, in you know, 2400 BC, it's considered the father of medicine because he, he actually was looking at natural laws. He was looking at what people were eating. He was looking at, you know, were people getting sleep? You know, he wasn't interested in giving something necessarily to an individual. He was looking at the types of things that they were doing for themselves on an everyday basis. So now that we're 4,000 years later, basically, it's like it hasn't. And when you look at, you know, the centurions will say people in the world who live the longest to reach 100 years old, invariably, when you when they are interviewed, they basically said, I have a regular schedule, I have a regular routine, I eat well, I move my body every day, you know. So these are the so-called natural laws. And, you know, all 7 billion of us on this planet have to go, have to do the same things every day in order to maintain the level of our physiology that basically is maintaining it. People are often surprised that, you know, genetically, we're incredibly similar, like 99%, 99.5% of our genes are the same in every person and only a very tiny portion are not the same. So everybody's pancreatic enzymes works the same or your heart beats the same way, you know, those types of things. And even though there's different challenges and problems, we still go back to the basic physiology of how does it work? And and when we approach it from that perspective and then apply specific types of therapies, I think that's why, you know, in the way that we practice medicine, we get such dramatic effects and because often, you know, our patients come to us and you know, whether it's high blood pressure and they're taking a, hyper, a hypertension medication, as long as they're taking the medication, it works. But as soon as they stop it, it's like, it's a problem. So which to me says, well, you haven't really addressed the problem yet. And so our goal is to have people who are taking medications continue to take them while we, while we start to address the sort of the underlying issue. And then one day they say, gosh, I don't think I need this medication anymore because my body is working the way it's supposed to be working. 
So what would you say are those basic things that we can do every day? I mean, some of it's kind of obvious, but I think that there's a there's a specificity that you bring to it that's important because, I mean, we do talk about diet, we do talk about sleep and hydration, but are there any kind of degrees of specifics you can bring to either that or to other things as well that are important for people to be doing on a daily basis that is critical to them either reversing disease or maintaining health? Absolutely. They, you know, they, they, it's interesting because very often the, you know, the first thing that one has to do is to say, what is the most important in order to survive? Like if you cut, if you get something cut off, what is the first thing what you would pass away from? And the first thing that you would pass away from is not getting any oxygen. So, you know, so basically these, the assumption is, is that, you know, if you take a deep breath, theoretically if you're breathing and for some reason your heart stops and you don't pump blood around and not pumping oxygen around your brain has enough oxygen they say for about six minutes or so so if you're deprived of oxygen for six or seven minutes more than six or seven minutes then unfortunately you'll end up being your brain will will die and as a result of that the individual will die so the most important thing that people need to do is to change their their idea of unconscious breathing which is about 16,000 times a day to conscious breathing. You know, the average person breathes about 16 to 18 times per minute. If we reduce that to five and a half times per minute, which is a breath every 11 seconds and make it conscious, what you'll end up doing is dramatically slow your heartbeat down. Your, Your heart will work a lot more efficiently for what's going on. So the number one thing is practice deep breathing, which like, really? Yeah. So I have people make little signs until they get used to it. So breathing is, that. so what's the next thing that ultimately we would need in order to survive? Well, we would need water. The So how long can you survive without water? Well, you know, anybody who's been in, you know, any type of a hot heat situation. So theoretically, maybe you can survive three days, maybe four days, maybe or less per se. So it's like, okay, so how much water are you getting in? We know that water makes up over... 50% of our body in general, for our body composition. In fact, the average man is 55 to 60% water and the average woman is 50 to 55% water. A baby is from 75 to 80% water. So, which is why they become so easily dehydrated if they have diarrhea or fever because, you know, they're losing that water so rapidly and it could have a very serious consequence. So the, the, the rule of thumb is you take your body weight in pounds, you divide it by two. That theoretically is the amount of water that you should be including on an everyday basis. So a 150-pound person theoretically should be using about 72, you know, 75 ounces of water on a daily basis. I personally do not include coffee. I do not include juice. I do not include alcohol or other, other beverages when including when I'm talking about water. Water is so essential for every single cell in your body. In fact, your brain is almost 80% water. And so it's it's one of the first things that literally can become dehydrated. And unfortunately, you know, when somebody is thirsty, they're already dehydrated because the first sign of dehydration is, is brain fog, mental confusion. I can't think as well. I can't find my words. People said, oh, that's, isn't that sort of early mild cognitive decline? No, it's actually a sign of dehydration. So with the exception of, you know, being outside doing a sporting activity or doing work of some type in, in a warm environment where 
it's pretty obvious that you'll become dehydrated more quickly. The goal is just to be drinking water throughout the day without actually getting thirsty. Once again, and for people who are not used to that, I usually suggest you take a big jug, you fill the jug to start off the day. So you actually know how much water you drank through the day until you get used to it. And always, so if you're, you know, whatever your, the amount of water is that you have to drink by the end of the day, you want to make sure that that, that container is empty. Another one that people don't tend to think about as, as being important is getting outside. It's like getting outside. It's like, oh, geez, like, you know, we're talking to somebody in Calgary the other day. It was like 26 below two days ago. It's like 26 below. Who's going to be outside? I said, well, you got clothes to wear. Get outside. And the reason we need to get outside is because people don't realize that 80% of the pollution that they breathe in every day is in their house. Uh, it's yes, you can have, you know, if you live in Los Angeles or, you know, in Seattle and during the, just the, this past summer when the forest fires were on, the, the air quality was apparently the worst in the entire world. So it's like, well, I'm not going to get outside then. But with all due respect to, you know, those types of exceptions generally going on, we need to get outside in order to get away from the four walls in which we live that basically have all kinds of chemicals, all types of gassing, you know, what's under your, your kitchen sink, what's under your, your bathroom sink are generally not the healthiest products in, for, in many homes. So we want to get outside in order to truly appreciate, you know, that there's, there's fresh air that we ultimately can be breathing. So I generally feel that 30 minutes a day and the ideal time, the ideal thing to be doing when you're outside is some type of activity, whether you're walking or stretching or, you know, doing yoga poses or qigong or just some form of movement, you're basically combining, you know, that type of thing ultimately for what's going on. Diet is, is becomes individualized. There's a thousand and one diets that have been promoted for all kinds of health problems. You know, my, and depending on what an individual's challenges is. So some people say, well, if you're, do I do a ketogenic diet? So do I do intermittent fasting? Should I do a paleo diet? Should I do a Mediterranean diet? Should I do an anti-inflammatory diet? Should should I do an allergy diet? And so they all have preference. They all have a, a an aspect that at some point they probably are beneficial. But in reality, the ideal diet for every person is the diet that fits their temperament, which is a whole other discussion about, yeah. you know, well, what's your temperament? But the, the temperament diet for somebody in balance they know exactly what to eat because it makes them feel just totally awesome per se. And, you know, that's a, that's a function of time ultimately to be able to get people there. So and that's what I've these... found is I start people with a heavy conversation about eating living food, like starting there with, with whatever diet we're focusing on, we're focusing on that you're eating fresh fruits and vegetables and you're eating foods as close to their natural state that they came out of the ground or off the tree or from the farm and that it's, it's got a, a life force energy to it and it's whole and, and close to organic as you can get and as close to local as you can get. And that that focus has become more important for me than getting into the nitty gritties of a specific carbohydrate diet versus the autoimmune protocol versus the gaps diet versus, you know, intermittent fasting versus like all of those components is to focus there. And then I watch people gravitate like, 
well, actually, Dr. Marshall, I do fine with dairy. And I notice if I do dairy in this way, it works for me. And then I have someone else who's like, I just cannot under any circumstances eat red meat. It doesn't sit well with me. I find that this is better. Oh, I love oats. Oats totally work. It's like they gravitate themselves towards what aligns with their body, even if I kind of start everyone from a beginning starting place for their own like cleaning out and detoxification and that awareness like you've talked about starting with a jug of water to even get the awareness of what it's like to drink that much water, starting with signs to get that kind of awareness of what it's like to take that many, you know, conscious breaths in a day is like, there's a starting point, but people come to me all the time being like, well, what's your favorite diet? And I'm like, it depends. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And you always said, eat the rainbow, you know, diversity of multiple colors of foods particularly in the fruits and vegetables department. And and I think something to the effect of getting 10 colors a day. You know, the, over the years of, that I've practiced, the sort of the, you know, the, the government has always produced sort of guidelines for diet. And years ago, they were talking decades ago, it used to be three colors. And then I went to five colors. And then I went to the colors of the rainbows, rainbow. And then I'm going to say 20, it's 2017, 2018. There was a, very good study that was published that had been done over a period of time. And they actually have shown that the ideal number of different colors of fruits and vegetables is 10. And when people were eating a variety of 10 different colors, you know, over a period of a day, there was dramatic reduction in our most chronic illnesses. There was a dramatic reduction in cancer incidences. There was dramatic reduction in cardiovascular disease. Was a dramatic reduction in cancer, and that's irregardless of any other factors. So, you know, and so we say, well, I wonder why colors of fruits and vegetables. Like, what are we getting in these fruits and vegetables that are so potent and so powerful? And you know, basically, it's a we call them phytonutrients. And there's every the different color is because of different phytonutrients in them that gives the individual. So a green apple has different nutrients than a red apple does you know, in general, and an orange has a different phytonutrients than a tangerine or a yellow banana type thing. And so what mostly, in addition to phytonutrients, what has mostly been found in studies forever in, in the American diet, in the standard American diet, are minerals. And where do we get our minerals? We get our minerals mostly from fruits and vegetables. You know, and when you have flour that basically is from carbohydrates, it says, well, you're getting grains, you're getting carbs and stuff. But, and most, I don't know the percentage off the top, but I'm going to say over 80% of the U.S. population is deficient in at least one mineral in pretty much every study that's been done. And so when you're eating a variety of colors, you can almost assure that, you know, the 75, 80, certain minerals that we need, not just calcium, magnesium, and you know, some of the big mac- iron, the zinc, the macro minerals, but also the, the, the micronutrients that are essential for so many body functions. And when we do specific type testing, you can say, oh, this person has, is deficient in XYZ or has low numbers. And it's like, well, I'll just take a vitamin mineral. Is that, yes, you can do that, but you'd be better off eating more colors. Yeah. Do you actually think we can get everything we need still from the diet? Like there's been some argument that their soil depletion makes it really hard to do that. But like, is it possible? In theory, it's possible. But I think, unfortunately, I don't think most people have enough general knowledge about nutrition to be able to mix and match and to, you know, to to get, you know, how much, where do you get selenium? Do we 
you know, five Brazil nuts, you know, and so there are, so in a theory, in a theoretical answer, yes, it's possible. However, in practicality, with the way society, I probably the, one of the most common things I recommend is a mineral supplement, much more so than a vitamin. It's actually easier to get vitamins than it is minerals because minerals yeah. are harder to absorb. So I, it's very commonly a use some form of a mineral supplement, you know, whether it's in a liquid form, a boidal mineral, or whether it's in a, uh, you know, a mineral in a capsule form. Those are those are generally part, I think, of a healthy support in, in, in one's diet, for sure. And then with hydration, do you feel like there's, are there things that we need to be responsible for? Like sometimes we've talked about like people's sodium levels or their adrenal health or other components that connect to when someone feels like they're drinking enough water, but they're not able to get hydrated. What would be some of the things that actually support our body's ability to absorb and utilize water? It's a great question because it actually follows perfectly what we just talked about. Almost always, if somebody is drinking enough water, but when you do a body composition analysis and you find they're only 43%, let's say, hydrated versus, you know, 50 to 60% hydrated, the easiest solution, doesn't work all the time, is to add minerals. Because minerals are almost just like it holds on, it allows the cells to hold on to that water and to absorb the water and to put the water in the right place inside the body. So it's always the number one. And it was many years ago, it was one of my patients who said, at nighttime, he would get up and he would have to drink, you know, almost a quart of water because he was so parched. And he, and he, and I, and he said, I mean, he kept experimenting. And what he found was, is if you put a little bit of lemon in the water, literally a pinch, just a little bit, he said, what happened? I said, this could, so anyway, the research that I found was if you put minerals in water, your ability to absorb them dramatically improves. Of course, if we're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, we're also getting them. But the key thing about water is, we're not drinking water with our meals. We're drinking water between our meals because the goal is we're using our saliva when to chew to help digestion. And we're not washing stuff down by drinking during the meals. So by what you said is, a, is indeed a common problem that patients have because they say the reason I don't drink is because I immediately have to go and pee. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a, a school teacher who says I can't leave the room because the kids are in the room. So the I nurse, don't drink any water yeah. all day. Nurses, you know, they're you know, you have salespeople who are traveling around. They don't know where the next bathroom is, so they don't drink all day, which is unfortunately very challenging for the physiology of the body. So, you know, the goal is is that when you when you start to introduce this type of thing over time, the body becomes be able to becomes adapted to it. And you know, the whole idea is people say, well, if I drink in the evening, I have to get up during the night to to pee. I said, well, we let's look at some minerals. Let's see if we can correct that. Yes, it's not uncommon. Let's say when somebody gets to 50 or 60, they may get up, which is a function. However, lots of my lots of the patients don't get up. So you can train your body that it doesn't need to get up. Your dog I've doesn't get had, up. So why right? are we, we, I know. we don't have to get up. So And I've noticed that as I work with my clients, that's often an indicator that I start to see their bodies holding on to minerals better and they they stop having to pee as often at night, if at all. Like it actually, you know, there's there's all kinds of other things I'll see where the body's having a hard time holding on to the water or it's dumping toxicity at night. And as we do detox and as we help support their body in other ways, 
that that ends up resolving, even though they're getting older, they're having an easier time not peeing at night because of that, the actual rest of the physiology is getting back into a normal natural alignment. So I want to like, kind of now go to the other end of the conversation of like, here's, this is a lot of those important pieces of, of what you have talked about as the basic treatment guidelines, basic wellness guidelines that anybody can do that starts to make a difference. And all of my chronic disease patients, I do the same thing. Like we have to start there. And it's always amazing how much improvement they get in their health from simply starting with the basic treatment guidelines before we've ever gotten into other interventions to, to reverse illness or to impact the rest of their physiology. But I do want to talk about that. So when we look at chronic illness and we look at people who are actually looking to get well from a very unwell state, like, you know, I don't know, do we want to go straight into talking about biotherapeutic drainage? Is there a broader way you'd like to approach it? Like how, how do you look at the body in such a way that makes a difference to actually heal from a chronic illness versus just deal with their symptoms? You just touched on a point that I think, you know, that's important to talk about first. And, and you know, this concept that people have of detox, I mean, we're about to enter the, you know, a period of time, you know, and with Thanksgiving coming up soon and Christmas. So we're, we're going to have a six-week period. I'm going to call it a debauchery. That people <laughs> think, oh, it's Christmas. It's yep. like, oh, we can we can go to a party, we can have a glass of wine, you know, yeah, we can eat a little more dessert type things than we normally would. And, oh, well, if I, I gain a, a couple of pounds, you know, after New Year's, I'll make my New Year's resolution and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to not eat any sugar and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, people have this concept that you can do this debauchery for a week and then suddenly you snap your fingers, do something for a week and it all goes away. Well, the body doesn't work like that, unfortunately, and it's not quite that simple. So when I think of, you know, what detox is, it's not just about sort of, you know, emptying your colon or emptying your bladder type thing. It's what is what is the cell function ultimately doing? And people tend to think, well, how do we get rid of things? It must be through our blood, our bloodstream because, you know, blood circulating carries oxygen, you know, to the cells and it carries carbon dioxide, you know, out of the body, which is ultimately what we breathe out. But the most important system that some people, many people perhaps do, are not familiar with is your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system has about four times more fluid in it than our cardiovascular system does, meaning it has up to 12 liters at times. And it, it, it's our entire body is covered with this, with this drainage system known as the lymphatic system. People may be aware when they, if they have a sore throat, they'll have a you know, swelling in their neck. They, that's a lymph node and in the groin because they're close to the surface. But they're actually, these things are all over your body. And these are a huge part of your immune system. It's a huge part of how your body is able to defend itself. And I can categorically say that if you've been diagnosed with any nature of a chronic illness, I can 100% guarantee that you have a congested lymphatic system. I've tested so many people that I've never seen a chronic a patient with a chronic illness who does not have chronic, you know, they say, well, how is it 100% and nobody talks about it. Well, the main reason people don't talk about it is because there's no lymphologist, there's no specialty in medicine that deals with the lymphatic system because there's no drug that you give to help the lymphatic system. 
the lymphatic system is something that we have to do to, for ourselves. The number one way we move our lymph is to move our body. So, you know, there's no, there's no pump or there's no like a heart that moves things around. The lymphatic system requires contraction of our own muscles in order to ba basically move the lymph. And with the society, and especially after coming through a couple of years of COVID, where people started not even going, getting out of their house because they were afraid to, or because they were restricted from, they sat in front of a computer to do their work on an so they, their only activity was to walk around their house. We lost a lot of that ability, which meant we had, there's a lot more stagnation ultimately that that's going on for people. So before we, you look at any type of other types of therapy. And so in fact, we recommend it as a natural law. That's why movement is a natural law. Uh, and why, what's it doing? It's not just for healthier muscles. It's actually to get your lymphatic system to move. So, you know, we have in addition to, movement and whether that's you know walking or you know stretching or yoga or qigong whatever it is it's some form of movement to to get you know resistance ideally to get some muscles to move is but then we have everyday things we have you know we have people who can do dry skin brushing we have people who can do a castor roll pack now with the little mini rebounders the little mini trampolines are coming back bouncing on the trampoline as, as a way to get your lymphatic system to move so Things, once again, that you can do at home would be the start of a detox. And so, you know, if you're if you're the person that you're working with wants you to drink this and drink that, which is fine to do that. However, if you're not doing this other stuff, you're still going to have this congested congestion in your lymphatic system. And so somehow you have to move that, which would be has to be part of a detox system. The analogy I remember from med school was something the effect of if you don't move your lymphatics, it's equivalent to you're always doing your dishes in the sink without ever changing the water <laughs> over and over and over again. And you just keep doing more dishes and doing more dishes. That's what we do. We take all the detox products, but we're not moving the lymph. The water is never getting changed out. It's not actually being able to fully get ridded, rid out and cleared out of the body. So when we look from that standpoint, we have, you know, how our body can also support detoxification, which is also critical to immune system function, which comes into that, you know, those are very closely related systems. Now we're looking at actually reversing chronic illness and what it takes to heal. Like, can, how do we heal? What is required for healing to actually restore the body back into health? So there's the, I mean, I'm going to try and simplify it to, you know, two or three of the, of the absolute most basic things that are absolutely essential for the body to heal. So if we sort of step out of, of the idea of like, what, what is this human form that we call, you know, our body and how does it run? And so for all intents and purposes, our, our body is an electromagnet. Every, every organ, every, every function that's going in the body is based on energy, you know, from the aspect of, of uh, making things work. And so what generally happens always in chronic disease is we, is we lose these electrons. We lose our electrical charge that's happening in our body. So normally, let's say on an average, in a, on average, in a healthy cell, a healthy cell has a charge of about, let's say, minus 50, minus 60 millivolts. And they actually can measure these with sophisticated instruments. So that's why we know what the number is. We know as we get a little older, it's a little bit less. It may not be minus 50, minus 60. But we also look at when 
when people are not well, when we have unhealthy, when they measure unhealthy cells, for example, cancer cells have a charge of about a po positive 15 millivolts. Now, the challenge of a, of a cancer cell that has a positive charge is you, you can't make a new cell that's healthy because that cell has to have a charge of about, let's say, minus over minus 30, minus 40 millivolts. And, and whatever the treatment is, whatever a person needs to do, you somehow need to literally charge up the person. You need to charge mm -hmm. up that electromagnetic field. And what we also know, which is another basic thing that we now recommend to everybody, is that the, the earth has an electrical charge. Now, one of the reasons that we see more chronic disease, unfortunately, are called shoes and Nike. Well, blame Nike. Well, blame Nike for everything, right? <laughs> you know, per se, because yeah. they made these rubber, these rubber sold shoes that insulate us from the earth. Yeah. And so we're not, we're not getting the electrons that are constantly on the earth's surface. So we're saying you need to take your shoes off, take your socks off, walk bare feet, touch the earth. Now people say, well, there's going to be snow on the ground soon. Well, if you do wind, Wim Hof stuff, you know, you maybe you'll walk in. Who cares walk about the snow. snow? That's right. Who cares about the snow? So, you know, so when I, when we were in Portland and, you know, get, it's chilly in Portland in the wintertime, I would have people get, make a sandbox. So I literally put it in their basement or their garage, go to, you know, Home Depot, make a little, you know, four by four, fill it with sand. Some of you don't have a cat who uses it as a litter box. And then basically <laughs> they would, they would march in the sand. And by doing that, you actually can pick up that. So people who live near water on the beach, I mean, they can walk in the water and on the beach, which is pretty basic, two different types of energy uh, that you can get. So walking bare feet as much as possible, touching the earth as much as possible, lying on, but in the summertime, certainly lying on the grass, anything like that is to, is to recharge your electrons, which is something that you can do on a regular basis. Now, of course, in our clinic, we can do machines and, you know, Pulse electric magnetic fields are quite common now in, in the medical field where we're actually, we're adding electrons. And so with chronic disease, that becomes part of the, of the therapy. So what the person does at home is grounding. You can also get a grounding mat put on your bed. So you're sleeping on it for, you know, seven, eight hours, which is also grounding. And then you can do very So there's ways at home that you can do that. And then, you know, depending on the nature of the chronic illness. So we need to get these electrons back. So that's if you if the body doesn't have the proper number of electrons, you can never repair to a healthy cell. Hmm. The other thing that seems to be problematic in chronic illness is, is oxygen starvation. And we now you go to the doctor, they measure your pulse ox. They said your, your amount of oxygen in your blood is great. It's, you know, 96, 97, 98, 99%. Oh, you've got plenty of oxygen. However, when you have stagnant lymphatics, when you don't have enough electrons, what I'm finding is, is that even though you have enough oxygen in the blood, it can't get into the cell. It can't get mm -hmm. out of the blood, cross the, the, the barrier. And, you know, whether it's going into your brain or your heart or your pancreas or your big toe, you know, it's almost like you have this glue, you know, a, a cesspool, we'll say, as opposed to a nice clean dish. And the, we don't get a transfer. And if we're not transferring oxygen, if we're not transferring minerals, if we're not transferring electrons, or if we're not transferring hormones and everything else that's required for healthy cells, it's going to be very difficult as these cells reproduce themselves because they, they, every cell is a finite life and they die in, 
and you know we need new cells. So chronic disease is a component of supporting those basic functions. Get more oxygen in. We already talked about deep breathing, which is one way to get oxygen in. We need to move our lymphatics. We just talked about how do we move our lymphatics. Now we're just talking about getting electrons into your body. So when you do those three things as a starting point, you will dramatically increase the likelihood that the cells, as they repair themselves, will actually heal and be able to heal properly. And unfortunately, this isn't something that you snap your fingers. I'll take this for you know a day and, and it's better. And this is the type of thing as cells, I mean, different different tissues repair at different rates. You know, the, our eye turns over literally within every the cells in the eye every almost every 24 hours. In our gastrointestinal tract, every three to five days, we're getting new cells that are formed. The, and so every tissue has a different time frame. And so we have to keep doing the treatments over a period of time. So, you know, there's some in the past that used to say that every seven years, you're a new body. 100% of every cell in your body has replaced itself. It may or may not be that long, but there is a period of time that obviously cells are skin, for example. Every 28 days, you have a new layer of skin. It's like, did you know that? That you're shedding your skin like a snake? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it doesn't fall off. No, but it is re- it is regenerating itself, you know, about every 28 days. And then you have somebody with psoriasis, you know, this scaly. It's like, well, it's, re- it's turning over much faster, which is why it gets scaly. So we look at those types of basic physiologic components that are essential as we're healing chronic disease and don't ever don't ever let be told that you, you have a condition that's not curable there are there are no such things as non-curable diseases when we literally can get everything in order and so you know you can name any disease in the world and somewhere in the world somebody's healed from that illness because of a variety of factors so nothing is incurable the body has the ability to, to heal itself obviously so we need to get the stuff out. We need to get healthy stuff in. We need to charge the battery up. Just like if you're using a laptop computer and you forget your, your cord, you know, you're using it for a day and suddenly it's like, oh my God, the screen just went black. Oh, it has no power. Well, our bodies will can be in the same place. And if we don't power it up on a regular basis, it's not going to be able to regenerate healthy new cells and healthy new tissues. Awesome. And you also just answered one of the questions that I hadn't even asked you yet about, do you believe in cure? <laughs> so, you know, cause that's like, I have seen so often how cure is a four letter word in the medical community. And I, you know, even when I look from, when I look from the laws of nature and I look from, you know, my understanding of physiology and that there really is, if you put the body in the right environment, the environment that it needs to heal, it will completely regenerate itself. There's also the other side of it, which from all my coaching work, if you, you know, if you told all these people who are financial advisors that it's impossible to make millions of dollars in the stock market, I'm sorry, that is unethical for you to be able to become a billionaire. You actually have to stop at a hundred thousand dollar investment. That's it. That's all you're allowed to have. That's the best we can do. Like that's literally what we do in medicine on a regular basis is tell people that this is as good as it can get. It can't get any better. And then there's actually conversations that it's considered unethical for physicians to discuss 
the possibility of cure. And it like blows my mind. I'm like, if anybody said that in the financial investing industry, they would look at like, you're the weirdest person in the world, you know? And so from a coaching standpoint, to be able to not from a place of sensationalism or empty promises, but to actually empower my patients and my clients to say, yeah, you can aim for that. This is possible. Your body is capable of this. Now we've got to really look at how the, your environment is organized, including your relationships, your work environment, where you live, your physical structure, the actions you take every single day, where you can get yourself. And for me, what I see is the more we move people towards who they really are, their the the self that wants to be expressed here in this lifetime, that moves them towards greater and greater levels of health. And I see that in the healing process all the time as people heal, they actually become more fully self-expressed, closer to a version of themselves they've always wanted to be. So like it's it's so awesome to hear you talk about that from that same place of the possibility of cure and that what the body and physiology is capable of. You know, it's unfortunate that, you know, many, many patients come to us with the idea that, you know, they have a terminal illness that just can have a pretty bad, challenging effect on somebody's psyche. And, you know, we're not suggesting that, you know, somebody who has stage four cancer and has been told that, you know, unfortunately, your, you know, all your organs are not capable of reproducing themselves. I mean, that's that there is a reality there. So what we are talking about is somebody with condition X, you know, whether you're talking cancer or heart disease or you know, any ALS or Parkinson's disease or whatever, you can reach it at what we call a level of optimal performance. You know, having treated Down syndrome patients, having treated autistic, you know, children, there, there, there is at times, or cystic fibrosis, let's say, there's, there are a small percentage of the world, tiny percentage, who have a truly a genetic deficiency. And the genetic deficiency, we probably can't change. You know, if you're missing in a Downs, if you're missing a specific gene, we can't make the gene. But what we can do is we can optimize every gene that you have through what we call epigenetics. And kind of what we're talking about is the epigenetic changes that are responsible, that allow a person to tru truly be able to heal, which is what you just mentioned, the physical environment that you surround yourself with, the emotional environment you surround yourself with, where you choose to eat, where you charge your partner, where you choose to live, yada, yada, all those types of things. You have a choice over those, and those types of things will have a dramatic impact on somebody's ability to heal. And so they truly can. There is, once again, as you said, every disease is curable. You know, I typically say, there are no incurable diseases. There are only incurable patients with the idea being that some people for different reasons and you tell them that, you know, that these are the types of things that are going to be required. They think it's too hard and they choose to not do it, which is their choice, of course, because we have the ability to choose what we choose to do. However, for people who are truly engaged in trying to reach their level of optimal performance and are willing to engage in some of these, we call them, you know, self the things that they do for themselves it will allow them to truly cure you know and when you were in school sarah i don't i think i had probably changed my mind but i know when i was in school forever 50 years ago i was told that autoimmune diseases were incurable if you mm -hmm. had an autoimmune disease it was incurable and if you have rheumatoid arthritis there's nothing you can do about it we'll, we'll try and manage it We'll try and you know, support you. We'll try and you know prevent you from having pain and disfigurement. But that's the best we can do. 
well, now that we have a whole different concept and a whole different idea of understanding what these diseases are, we have the ability to know that people have the ability to truly have an autoimmune disease that's curable. And well, I can think of an MS patient, for example, who, you know, they, who doesn't have started with the, the typical MS symptoms, but after a period of time of treatment, doesn't have any MS symptoms anymore. So, you know, is she cured? She doesn't have any MS symptoms. So her neurologist did a, a, another scan of her brain and her spine and said, well, you still have the plaques. She said, but I don't have any symptoms. He says, yeah, but you still have MS, but I don't have any symptoms. So from the neurologist's perspective, you're not cured because you yeah. still, he says, you. but I have always said, and I taught you when I taught neurology that the plaques don't decide, decide whether you have MS or not. There's a lot of other factors that are involved. So, you know, I have quite a few and a whole variety of autoimmune type illnesses that patients have no symptoms. You're not going to have any symptoms. I'm convinced they'll eventually die of old age or something else. And they'll say, well, I guess I died with MS, but I don't have MS type thing. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about emotions and trauma, because that's also a huge part of this process. And so, you know, I mean, I just said it, but like from your standpoint, do you see that playing a role in people's illnesses? And how do we go about making a difference for people when that's what they're dealing with? Well, that's the that's a very that's a topic that's very close to my heart. I I was in practice for many years and and I was always quite happy that when a person would come back and say they felt better, you know, they would come in XYZ and, you know, three or five years later, they were fine. And then, then they would get lost and, and, uh, you know, they, they would then drift away and then they come back three years later and we're back to square one. So what the heck happened? Like, how do we get back to square one? What happened? They said, well, I stopped doing things. So, okay, well, we know you have to do things for what's going on. But what I started to find is, is that there were the, you know, so let's say, I mean, a common one is, is the thyroid. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis is a very common autoimmune disease that many patients have. You know, they say that up, up, up to 40% of people at some point in time have actually a, a, a voider on their thyroid gland. doesn't mean they have Hashimoto's. But Hashimoto's is, you know, is this where the body is, is breaking down its own thyroid gland per se. So when we look at that type of a thing, somebody will measure their thyroid hormones. You know, their TSH will be high, their, their free T4 will be low. You do thyroid antibodies and they're positive. They say, oh, you have Hashimoto's disease. Here, this is how we treat it. And they'll give you legal thyroxine, they'll give you armor thyroid, they'll give you nature thyroid, or they may do some herbal things, normalizes that, and they have to keep taking that for the rest of their life. So the assumption is their problem was their fatigue and dry skin and constipation and menstrual stuff is due because their thyroid was off. However, it wasn't due to, the question is, well, why was their thyroid off? So yes, you treated their, their, their physiology and saying, now we've got normal thyroid levels, but we haven't yet treated the problem. And so what I found in time is, is that when we look at the evolutionary development through our you know, a few hundred thousand years that we've been on this planet, we come to find that that there are different stages of, of that we evolve. Our organs evolve at different stages. Our endocrine system evolves at different stages. Our brain develops at different stages. 
And the specific stage of the thyroid happens between about 18 months and age seven. And so what I found over time is, is that it was quite common when, when people were invest, asked about that, that something happened during that time frame. And in fact, at, at about age four to five is when our thyroid gland reaches maximum amount of thyroid production for our body size. If something interferes with it at that point, that we eventually come to find will develop some type of a nature of a problem uh, within the thyroid gland. So by going back and treating then whatever that trauma was, we were able to reverse this the thyroid issue. And suddenly the, the, the antibodies that they thought they were going to have forever are not there anymore. So the course adverse childhood experiences has now been studied pretty extensively it's probably started in with the Romanian orphans many years ago when they were basically left in a crib. They weren't touched, and then they, they watched them grow up, and they were unfortunately had a, a lot of social interaction problems. It's now been well-researched, and, and in fact, I've just written a book about it, which will be coming out very soon, in regards to how trauma has such an impact on somebody's life later down the road without them even realizing that, that something happened. And... The interesting thing about trauma is when one person may consider trauma, the next person doesn't think it's trauma at all. And I, I have a years ago, identical twins as patients. And so literally everything is the same. They're, they truly are identical. They look the same. You know, so all their genes were the same, same parents, everything is the same. And I don't remember the specific event, but I think it was their grandmother dying, if I'm not mistaken. One of the twins it was incredibly a difficult time. It was like she had a really, really hard time with it. The other twin, it's like, oh, it's really unfortunate that her grandmother passed away, but she, her life moved on. And as I, as these two, as these two girls grew, one developed these specific types of problems, and the other one didn't. Said, and what was different? And we literally were able to trace it back to to a specific trauma: their grandmother dying when things started to change. And so it wasn't the trauma that's the issue, it's the perception of the trauma that I've come to find is the issue. So, and the aspect of, you know, we can look at cardiovascular disease. There was a, there was a study that Harvard published 10 years ago that showed if you think that, that the stress is gonna have a negative impact on your heart, then so the one group said yes, the other group said, ah, stress is part of life. And by following these people for 10 years, what they found is the people who believed that stress was going to affect their heart had a 40% higher increase of heart disease than the other group who said, that eh, stress is a part of life. So our perception of whatever the event is, trauma or otherwise, has a much bigger impact. And so I would say in many cases, in my personal experience of working with patients, is the trauma that we ultimately have is when we have traumas, we all have traumas. Life is life is a trauma. It's it's the, what do we do about it when we experience that? Is it something that we can't get over and have a very difficult time, you know, managing? And that and so we become stuck in a way that we ultimately can't get past that. So I've developed an entire protocol to literally try and go back and have people, we'll say, relive the trauma, but now we have a different outcome. Now it doesn't have to be causing the perception that, you know, things are a problem all the time for what's going on and has some, some amazing, incredible stories. I'll just tell you one because it still stands out. 
during doing this process, a patient was a, experienced her own her own birth by doing this particular process. You know, there's other ways of the breathing techniques may be a way of doing it, but through the what we're we doing, and and she through her entire life, there was a color that she didn't like, and there was a smell that she didn't like. And by re-experiencing her own birth, she realized that that color and that smell was in that her operating room when she was born. And as soon as that came to light, she said that wasn't an issue anymore. So we we're able to change her perception of something that she thought was, she, well, I don't want to like this color and the smell. It's very objectionable. So we can change how one responds to a previous trauma, no matter how many years ago it was, that that perception has a dramatic impact on people's ability to heal or not heal. Because very often this perception is having a, it triggers a reaction in the body. And I'd say the, one of the most dramatic reactions I've ever seen was a, was a patient. This is when I was still in Portland many years ago. She had an allergic, she had an anaphylactic reaction to roses. So, you know, it's pollens. It's like a pretty serious reaction. And the, so, Portland's whatever, the rose city. There's roses everywhere in Portland. I know. <laughs> it's all places to be allergic yeah. to roses. It's like she had an anaphylactic reaction. She carried an EpiPen all the time. But anyway, for whatever reason, I in my office, when she what, literally walked in, I had a plastic rose. It was a, it was a For whatever reason, she had an anaphylactic reaction to a plastic rose. She's looked at it and, and literally had an anaphylactic reaction. So the memory was triggered without actually smelling it, touching it, having any pollen. And so it was a triggered reaction that the body triggered, said, oh, my God, you're, you have this anaphylactic reaction. Get your EpiPen out because you're not going to be able to breathe here. So that was probably the most dramatic thing I've ever seen from an from a actual aspect of a learned perception there's no reason that she would have reacted just by looking at it, but her brain immediately went there. And it's, and when you change that ability of that, your brain doesn't have to go down that neural pathway. You don't have the reaction anymore. That's amazing. I mean, I remember I went through the protocol in 2013 and it took me about a year and a half to go all the way through it. And it was like, that's a line in the sand. Cause I mean, my listeners have heard about, I had asthma as a child. I had really severe mononucleosis when I was 14. I had kind of chronic constant strep throat to the point of getting antibiotic resistant strep throat. Like I had all kinds of immune system issues. They took my tonsils out right before I went to college and everything quote got better, but it actually went deeper into my body to where I was getting migraine headaches, seasonal affective disorder, depression, chronic constipation, like it all embedded deeper and when we did the brain protocol, when we went through the protocol process, it's not like it was like a lightning, like, oh, all my issues were gone. It was like this line in the sand of of what life was like before the protocol and what life was like after the protocol. And I'd already done a lot of work on healing my body up to that point to even be prepared for it and be ready for it. But afterwards, one of the key things I've noticed is I don't get sick when everyone else gets sick. I don't get the run of the mill colds and flus that everybody else gets. When I get any sort of an upper respiratory infection or a sinus infection, I literally call them transformational flus. It's like, I know exactly what my body is processing. It often happens at the end of like 
a spiritual retreat, or I just did a bunch of personal work and it's actually my body ridding itself of something it doesn't need anymore. And literally I'll be around other people and there'll be a cold going around. There'll be a flu going around and it doesn't, I don't get sick when everyone else gets sick. I will still get sick once a year or every two years, but it's so clear what it is doing and that it's my body processing, upgrading, elevating, releasing, detoxifying. And it almost always that I mean, every single time I've seen, even like I've had disc problems, I've had some bulging discs in my back that have come and gone. They are directly related to relationship stress, like almost down to the point where now the few times I've started to have a little bit of an inkling of one of my discs starting to slip out, I can almost immediately just sit down, journal about it, get clear what the origin emotions are, get clear what the situation is in my life, get in communication, handle that situation, and my back is healed. It's like I have a whole different relationship to my body now, and I distinctly remember that shift happening during the protocol. And that's, you know, the seven, eight, nine hundred people that have gone through the, the protocol over the last 25 years have similar i'll say similar comments similar experiences and it's not like oh yeah suddenly everything is better and you never get sick again uh but it basically it's a reframing it's a it's an understanding you laid it out uh, extremely well and you said something that i think is important to reiterate is this idea that that you're not supposed to get sick and if you're Mm -hmm. sick somehow there's a weakness in your system and and i tell people so you know i tell people well have you had a fever and been sick in the last year and i they say no i said well then go and roll around with some nursery kids and get sick because you're not tuning up your your immune system exercise for the immune system (laughs) you know yeah and people are always shocked that you know and i tell you know the the new baby i say well you know your baby has to get sick four times in this first year they freak out because they think, oh, my God, there's something wrong. I said, no, this is how you actually develop an immune system. Yeah. And now we unfortunately hear about all the RSV, the respiratory symptom virus, and sort of the pandemic, epidemic aspect right now. And they're saying, well, that's because children weren't exposed to anything. And that's exactly was is a big problem. So the fact that we've isolated ourselves, unfortunately, has weakened our system and wasn't necessarily, you know, this thing that somehow you know, was, was the best thing ultimately to do. But every year you should absolutely be not feel badly if you get ill. You're supposed to stop, take a couple of days off, put your cell phone away, you know, just rest, you know, read a nice book, that type of thing. Just let your body heal itself, which is a totally normal thing that, that we want everybody to be doing on a regular basis for sure. Yeah. I have like a million more questions because I could talk to you all day, but I think we've actually come to a good moment here to sort of wrap up for this this session, this time. And like you mentioned, we'll have your links to your bio and your and your website on the show notes, but it's drdixontom.com and you have a really awesome extensive library that you're building around more explanation into what those basic treatment guidelines are, what those things are that people have been doing at home. You have a, a podcast of your own where you've started sharing more of that information. There's a bunch of videos and a lot of great educational resources for people to get more access of this, which I'm super grateful for. People have asked me like, oh, where's the book on the BTGs? I've had patients ask me for where's the book I can read on this. And I'm like, I my answer was I hadn't written it yet, but now I'm really grateful that you beat me to the punch because I'd much rather read and then maybe we'll have a co- collaborative effort someday. But 
you know, it's excellent to have these resources for people because it's such, it's, it's so critical. And, and I think, you know, you know, this as well as any with 50 plus years of experience in medicine, medicine has fads. Medicine has all these pop culture things that come through. And, and so like, there's so much noise out there of like, what about peptides? And what about this? And what about that? And I just had somebody ask me recently about leptins and like, and I get it. And, you know, like, getting into these conversations of these details is like, okay, you can talk to me about that. When you do castor oil packs every day, when you, as you told me, do nebulizer treatments every night, because I had not been doing it. I was not listening to my own physician, but I am now. And you know, when you're eating 10 colors, when you're drinking water, when you're moving your body, when you're grounding, when you're, when you're doing those things, and then we can look, then we'll have that conversation, you know, and it's, it's so critical and no, it's not necessarily sexy and it's not trendy, but I've seen so many people in my own practice and learned so much from you about the difference that these core principles take. And one of the biggest complaints I hear from lots of people is the time that it takes. And it, and I get it from a certain perspective, but the flip is like, I actually have a practice where I will have them calculate how many days they've lived throughout their whole lifetime. And sometimes even how many hours that is and say, are you willing to take back an hour a day, seven days a week, seven hours, just simply for your well-being and start there to dedicate an hour a day to your well-being. And like, when you really think about that in the grand scheme of it, and you know the ayurvedic practitioners and my yoga teacher will talk about you're going to you're going to either pay now or pay later if you have this throughout your life in a balanced way you will not end up with a disease that then requires 100% of your time energy and effort down the road but it's going it's you've got to put the money in the bank one way or another and you know and then for my clients with chronic illness we got to turn the bus around, you know, and that takes something that takes investment in order to get the inertia turned around to recharge the body and restore it. So this is just so exciting for me to get to have this conversation with you. And I, it's such a joy and pleasure to have you contribute to our audience. And I look forward to future conversations. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, Sarah. It's the, the more people understand there's the, they have so much control over their own health that you know they they have their their health care team around them but it's more about them what they do than what their health care team does and you know these types of podcasts and these types of information i think hope is another step for them realizing that they can take back charge of their own health and there's a lot of things that they can do for themselves and be the best advocate for their health and not necessarily rely on the physician absolutely until we get to do it again Thank you, Dr. Tom. It's your pleasure for sure. Wow. Thank you so much to today's guest, Dr. Dick Tom, for a lifetime of service to humanity and the natural healing arts. For all the resources for today's show, visit my website, sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickport, and our kick-ass editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always... Thank you for being here. Until we see you next time. Okay, guys, it's 2023. What does that mean? 
Well, as much as I may want to resist going with the ye old New Year's resolutions, I do find that in January, I have a renewed sense of energy and desire to make some changes and get back on or just get on for the first time, the horse of health and well-being. Now, in the midst of our seventh season of Heal, I wanted to check in with you, my audience. What do you need now in your healing journey? What are your goals? What are you struggling with, dealing with, or even resigned to that you don't think will ever change? What has been there lingering in the background that you just don't want to drag into yet another year? I want to hear from you. I want to connect and be sure that we are delivering on the topics of information and inspiring stories to support you in your healing journey. When Kendra and I first crafted the idea for Heal, it definitely came out of my personal desire to put as much goodness and possibility of health and healing out into the world. And not actually here just to entertain you. My true heart's desire is that this show makes a difference in your life and supports you to take action to live health and heal. Also, I want to be sure that you know, I have a comprehensive deep dive medical health consulting practice where I meet with my clients virtually from all over the world, and I have room for you. Many people ask me if I'm taking new clients, and while I love that y'all think I'm book solid 100% of the time, actually, I want you to know I am available. I offer a free 30-minute exploration conversation to anyone interested in working with me to learn more about each other and how my approach may make a difference for you. Commonly, I work with people dealing with hormone issues, gut and digestive issues, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders, mold toxicity, chronic allergies, migraine headaches, insomnia, and people who have dealt with chronic anxiety and depression looking to support their body's biochemistry in addition to healing their emotional and mental challenges. While that may seem like quite a list, most of those diseases are connected and disorders are connected. So we will bridge the gap to bring it all together to elevate your health and your well-being and get your life back. I have a deeply intuitive and scientific-based approach. Yes, both. I bridge the worlds of coaching, spiritual energy healing, and doctoring to bring you the best tools you need to get your life and your health back as efficiently and effectively as possible. The early months of the new year come with an increasing light each day, bringing new vision, new motivation, and new energy. As the seeds you planted last summer and fall, deep beneath the soil are slowly waking up and gathering their power to sprout new futures this spring. This is the perfect time to take new action and create health and a pathway to healing. I'm here for you. If you have felt called to find out more about the possibility of working together, please reach out on my Connect page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com, and let's talk. Also, please contribute to the show with guest ideas or topic ideas or how-to guides or whatever it is that is going to make a difference for you this year in 2023. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to know about? What are you dealing with? You can shoot us an email on that same page of my website, sarahmarshallnd.com slash connect. I love you guys. Heal wouldn't exist without you. Thanks so much.